we're surrounded by artificial intelligence. Anytime you go online, AI remembers the sound of your voice, what you've bought on Amazon, even your political affiliation. If a computer program were to have a conversation with you, most likely you'd think it was a real person. The progress toward a conscious, sentient AI has captured our imagination, has challenged our assumptions of intelligence and consciousness, as well as our moral beliefs about using thinking beings as our servants. This is Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this week I'm talking about artificial intelligence. This episode, I used uh, research from the book Blockbuster Science, The Real Science in Science Fiction by David Siegel Bernstein, as well as a book I received from a white elephant gift exchange in college that I never thought was going to be useful. It's called Love and Sex with Robots, The Evolution of Human-Robot Relationships by David Levy. At first, when I first received this book, I thought it was about robots evolving to have relationships with each other. That was pretty naive of me, because of course it's about human-robot relationships. Just off the top of my head, I can name several science fiction works that have a that have a robot or artificially intelligent character. Just in recent memory, there is uh, Westworld, Person of Interest, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Interstellar had a robot, Terminator. But having um, artificially intelligent robots has been in science fiction since the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, it was the term robot was first coined in a play, actually, about a robot uprising. And after that, Isaac Asimov coined the term robotics to refer to the science of creating robots. But kind of as humans, we've always been um, fascinated by and passionate about creating some sort of human or animal-like artificial creature. Um, thousands of years ago, they created dolls and in the 1800s, they created um, dolls that could walk or talk. In 1839, at the World's Fair, there was a seven-foot robot that could walk, talk, sit, and even smoke a cigarette. And that was before the term robot even existed. They were just called machines. And why do humans want to create something that looks like us, that talks like us, or that looks or talks like a pet. Well, we're just social animals, and it's been shown that even like robot pets can s still stimulate the same centers in our brain that real pets do, um, especially for like senior citizens who spend time with a, a robot pet that can make noises and can move. Typically, these stories uh, have a dark side to them, um, kind of like in that first episode when we talked about Frankenstein, almost like we as humans have 
have gone too far in scientific creation and in technology that we've created a monster. Um, we've made these machines that are smarter than us, that are faster and stronger than us, and they turn on us. And that was the plot to that first play called um, R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots, um, by Carol Capick in 1921. But I want to make the distinction that Bernstein made in Blockbuster Science, in which artificial intelligence doesn't have to exist in a body, like what we think of as robots. I want to go back to Rene Descartes, the I think, therefore I am uh, guy. So he had a um, a theory or a philosophy called the mind and body dualism. And Bernstein says that robots and AI make up a true version of his um, philosophy. Descartes believed that the mind is not the same as the brain. The mind is the immaterial essence of being human. It is housed for a time in the body, but it is not a product of the body. Our mind is explained by the neural connections in the brain. That means that the mind, intelligence, cannot be separated from the human body. An AI mind, however, can be separated from the body. Robots can just be the machines. They don't have to be smart. They don't have to be conscious. They can just have this body. While artificial intelligence can exist out of this body, it can be on a network stored in servers. Uh, for example, in person of interest, the artificially intelligent machine um, doesn't have like a, a a humanoid form. It is stored on servers, um, and it but it can communicate through text chat interface, um, through a robotic voice on telephones. But it kind of exists everywhere. It's logged into the um, surveillance camera system in cities. And um, that's how it gets that information that it can process. And if you haven't seen Person of Interest, then maybe you've seen The Matrix, which also features an artificial intelligence. It doesn't have a physical form. It's everywhere. Um, it's a computer program that um, humans are plugged into and, and then interact with. So it challenges like what we think of as robots, but... We definitely know that they're machines, they're synthetic, but um, I think it's important to distinguish that they exist on a network, which is very similar to how artificial intelligence works now. Um, the artificial intelligence that we interact with on the internet is also like that, um, just not at that massive scale. So uh, like Bernstein says, um, artificial intelligence isn't the exact same as being a robot, but when we think about science fiction, often these artificially intelligent programs are stored in a body. Um, but yeah, just realize that it can also be stored on an on a network, or they can be stored in ships, right? Like in um, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or 2001 Space Odyssey, the AI was the uh, ship. Computer, what evasive action can we take? Uh, no, I'm afraid, guys. Or something? There seems to be something jamming my guidance systems. Impact minus 30 seconds. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Please call me Eddie if it will help you relax. So what is artificial intelligence? We kind of have an idea 
of it. It kind of exists on a spectrum, like there's weak AI, and then there's the real AI that we see a lot in science fiction, in which the program or the ship or the robot talks and reasons and can problem solve just like we humans can do. But there's also weak AI in the form of programs that look at your browsing history and your shopping history and make predictions based on that, or um, chatbots and customer support portals that you talk to to solve a problem. Um, Those programs don't really remember things that you say or distinguish you between other people, but they do solve problems and they do have some sort of thinking capability. So how is artificial intelligence different from our human intelligence? Um, Bernstein says that it's really important to not think of artificial intelligence as our biological brains. Like our brains are created through um, like biological neurons, like a collection of cells. And our cells can process a lot of information. Um, he says that it's quantified into about a petabyte of information. So it would be a thousand terabytes or a million gigabytes. And that's the information that we can store in our human brains, you know, in general. Well, that sounds like a lot of computers. If an artificially intelligent network can access, you know, thousands or millions of computers, then that obviously puts our petabyte to shame. But it's different because we process information through our senses, taste, touch, sight, smell. You know, computers don't have those. We can build technology to mimic some of those senses. We can put cameras in their eyes. We can put microphones in their ears. Um, but it's not exactly the same as the information that, that we get and then that we have to process. So uh, Bernstein wrote a really interesting distinction between biological brains and artificial brains. He says, what is really cool is that every brain on this planet has developed differently. Your brain cannot be repeated. You are so unique that the neural connections in your brain can be used as fingerprints for identification. A study out of Carnegie Mellon found that even identical twins only share about 12% of the same neural patterns. Um, and so that would obviously be different from computers. Uh, while the information stored can be different, you can repeat the same program over and over and over again. He goes on to say, our brains are neurons flourishing and making connections. Useless neurons are cold by experiences. Whatever isn't used is pruned. The gelatinous pack of neurons that remains somehow becomes your awareness. It can be introspective, like the feeling you get when smelling a flower, or how you react to different colors or falling in love. It is our ability to have the sensory experience of a sore elbow after swinging a lightsaber. Very funny, Bernstein. So now we're going to kind of dive deep into philosophy, because while we're contemplating and considering and building a conscious artificial intelligence, we have to think about, well, what makes us conscious? And people have been talking about this for centuries. So our uh, neurons connect um, through our experiences and create consciousness. We cre- it creates an awareness of our environment, and then we can learn um, more about our environment using our cognition, which is a higher order of functioning. We don't just remember, you know, how to breathe or, you know, how to make our heart beat. That's 
automatic. It's how do we solve problems? Um, how to learn to remember to judge. So it's kind of like when you have a, um, when you go to a park and you, um, see a tree and then you can smell the tree and it triggers a memory of the last time you were there. Like all of that stuff is, um, is connected to cognition and memory. And then intelligence is, um, our cumulative information and skills. When we say artificial intelligence, we also mean all these other things. It's not so much that a computer program or a robot knows how to do something or knows facts or trivia or um, knows all the information on the internet, but we also assume that it has cognition, that it may have consciousness and these other traits. So in humans, like even though we have a petabyte of storage, our brain isn't really efficient. Um, we make mistakes. We make assumptions. We can't process all the information that is coming through our senses. When you have a conversation with someone, you don't know what's happening all around you. At least you're not tuned into it because you're paying attention to the person who is speaking to you. And that's because your brain has kind of made these shortcuts and has kind of filled in the blanks. Like you know off in the distance something is happening, but you're not processing that consciously because you're paying attention to somebody else. And you could miss some things. We also have like certain biases. Um, there's a really cool book, and I think it's a podcast. It's called You Are Not So Smart. And it talks about all these shortcuts that our brain makes just so that we can function properly and not just shut down from an overload of information. So things like the confirmation bias. So we search out things that confirm our beliefs because it's hard for us to um, process new information that challenges our thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes every single day. So we tend to accept things that confirm our beliefs, as well as um, we tend to see patterns that aren't there. Uh, we tend to be superstitious. We tend to try to put a, a reason and order to things when things seem too random. Um, and these are all the things that human brains do that can be wrong and can um, lead to mistakes. And these are things that an artificially intelligent program tend not to do. So they'll have a lot more storage and they'll also process it all and not push things off to the side to make room for the more important things that our brains do, but have the resources and the capability to process all the sensory input as well as to follow things logically and rationally and problem solve um, without these biases that humans do, unless those biases are programmed into them to make them seem more human, which is something that programmers and creators do to make them seem more human. So how will we know when we have created a a conscious being, a an artificially intelligent being? Well, a lot of people have thought about this. Um, you may have heard of the Turing test that was created by Alan Turing, the computer programmer. Um, Alan Turing defined an intelligent program as one that could hold a conversation in a human language and convince a test subject that it was human. 
The test he devised, the so-called Turing test, holds that if a computer program can convince a sufficient number of judges a sufficient number of times that it is not a machine by answering a series of questions, then it is declared intelligent. And this would be a really good test if humans weren't so easy to fool, because we humans project human-like traits onto things that are not human. So um, decades ago, there was a computer program called Eliza, which was a chat program. You know, you could ask the computer program questions and it would answer. And um, and it was programmed to just repeat the question back into a statement or to ask just general probing questions. Humans love to talk about ourselves and we were f- and a lot of people were fooled and um, Some patients in a hospital got to chat with Eliza, and some people preferred talking to Eliza uh, rather than another person in the hospital um, because, and I want to call her she, um, because it was just easy to talk to. Um, David Levy of the Love and Sex with Robots book uh, says that we're just, we're just more honest with computers. Uh, We sense that they do not judge us. Uh, more people are honest on computer surveys than they are on paper and pencil because uh, we just don't want to be judged for our answers. And if, you know, computers, we somehow still believe that they can guarantee anonymity. So back to the Turing test. It turns out it was pretty easy to fool humans into thinking a program was intelligent. And so... uh, uh, an example that I really liked, a film that came out a couple years ago, was Ex Machina. Um, and in that movie, the main character goes to a remote location um, and meets a a robot who was created by a tech genius. And he was there to do the Turing test. But he knew that the individual he was interviewing was a robot. And that was part of the the new twist on the Turing test. If you know that the person in front of you is a robot, can you still determine whether it's intelligent, conscious and creative, and all of those things that we uh, ascribe to the artificially intelligent android? Another test to, um, to see if a robot is intelligent is the Lovelace test, um, named in honor of Ada Lovelace. Ada Lovelace was one of the first computer programmers, and um, her test um, tested creativity because um, it's not so much knowing how, knowing information and knowing skills um, and knowing your functions, but to be able to creatively problem solve is also, um, I think, an important test to test um, consciousness. Um, But like Bernstein says, a machine doesn't have to be conscious to pass these types of tests. Consciousness is not a requirement for artificial intelligence. I think it's something that we ascribe to our ideas of artificial intelligence because of science fiction. But uh, like Bernstein says, an algorithm does not need to be sentient to be effective. Uh, it does not need to experience subjectivity. An AI can effectively be a zombie and display just enough intelligence to act out its function. And so that's a really in, um, important part. So like in science fiction, in um, in Battlestar Galactica, uh, or in 
Westworld. Like they were programmed for a very specific function. And, and then they just kind of woke up and decided they weren't going to do that function anymore. And that's when they became sentient and became conscious. And um, Westworld, I thought, had a really interesting idea of what consciousness was. So the creator of the androids kind of described it as a triangle. And you had to start at the bottom and work to the top. And the top was consciousness. And then the bottom base was memory. So the androids had to remember and to build knowledge based on those memories. And so to try to stop them from being conscious, they would wipe their memories after every day. And then after memory was self-interest. So you think about that zombie algorithm or that computer program that just chats with you. It may have some autonomy for the different responses it can give you, but it's still performing its function the way it was programmed. So to kind of become an autonomous conscious being, it has to defy that programming and have some sort of self-interest or like Bernstein says, subjectivity. But we just assume that all robots are objective and rational. So in order to kind of reach this consciousness that we ascribe to humans, it has to have subjectivity and self-interest. And then after that is consciousness. So what happens when we create an intelligent being that is more intelligent than ourselves? Um, That was described as the technical singularity. So right now, our technological progress is limited to what we humans can create. But the theory of the singularity is that we create an intelligence that then creates a better intelligence and a better intelligence until humans just can't keep up anymore and we can't predict what's going to happen next. In Terminator, it was kind of like Judgment Day. Like we created these robots for military applications um, and then they just turned on us and we couldn't predict it. They became conscious. So that was that's an example of a singularity, albeit a, definitely a cynical one. But it's something to consider. Um, what if this next generation of AI is answering questions that we humans have had to answer? The questions that Bernstein uh, gave as an example is, Should an AI end global warming at the cost of jobs in a recession? That's a question that we have to answer, but we may use machine learning models to answer those questions too. Um, What if ending global warming costs lives? Say a few thousand, but it might save millions of future children. It's those kinds of uh, questions of collateral damage that um, we want to know what artificially intelligent um, computer programs would think about. Uh, In person of interest, thinking back again, the machine was created to catch terrorists. But um, at first, it would leave a lot of collateral damage. And um, as it learns, it becomes more compassionate about humans. But then there's a second machine that is built that is not compassionate toward humans and is very pragmatic and very cynical, and they kind of war with each other to be the single machine. Another part of consciousness um, that was uh, talked about in Westworld was the idea of an inner narrator. That's something that humans have. Um, it kind of sounds like our own voice, uh, but 
for artificial intelligence, it might be the computer programmer's voice like it is in Westworld, but it's like discovering that inner narrator and having that voice was a big part of them reaching consciousness. It was the idea of bicameralism or a two-chambered mind. It originated in the book The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind by Julian Jaynes. And uh, Bernstein wrote, he believed that consciousness developed in humans only about 30,000 years ago. Before then, humans ran more or less on automatic. This was the era of the bicameral mind, when the mind was divided into two parts. He proposed that when something novel was witnessed by primitive humans, and simple habit or reflex wasn't enough to deal with the situation, a voice popped into their heads to provide commands. Um, this auditory hallucination was to be obeyed. The voice might have been believed to be an outside agent like a chief or a god. Um, according to Jaynes, the shift from bicameralism to introspection was the beginning of consciousness, the awareness that no outside agent was putting thoughts into your head. It is when a person realized the pronoun used by the voice is I. So uh, Bernstein says this wasn't accepted um, by the g- general science community, but it was a really interesting part of Westworld, and so I wanted to repeat it here. Now that we've talked about consciousness and um, artificial intelligence and kind of our ideas of how it will come about, now we'll talk about robots. So we've created an artificial intelligent program, and we've put it into a body. So since, you know, the fictional imagination of robots in 1921 in that play, um, we've, we've as humans have created robots to be our servants, to do our bidding, to fill this function or solve this problem or do this skill under direct control of humans. So um, this type of robot is increasingly popular in the military. Um, highly trained pilots fly drones all over the world. Um, we, as of 2014, the United States military had over 10,000 recorded drones in its service. And we also use robots to defuse bombs on the ground, too. Um, and then just in our daily lives, uh, we have these, you know, kind of smart machines. We have Alexa device from Amazon. We have Roombas that clean our floor. We have um, smart TVs and smart appliances. Um, we have robots that work in factories. And once this idea came about of using robots, um, the author Isaac Asimov um, created uh, the four laws of um, robotics. And these were the rules that in his fictional universes, robots were, were programmed. So law one, A robot must not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. A robot must obey the orders given by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. And then the fourth law that he added in a later book was a robot might not injure, must not injure humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm. So he's a fiction writer, so obviously even though the progr- the 
the robots were programmed with these laws. Um, a lot of misunderstandings and problems arose from these laws. Uh, for example, robots couldn't really understand idioms. So when Bernstein's example, like um, a robot's owner could say, oh, my boss is killing me, and a robot will not understand that. Um, and would they protect their owner? Would they harm a human? But can they not harm a human because of the first law? So a lot of his work arose from such problems with having a relationship with a robot. So can anything really be sentient if it was created to do everything a human says? Like, you know, humans have a long history of subjugating and abusing and forcing people to do the bidding of a, a different group of people, but we have never really created a race of people. And I don't mean by ethnicity, but I mean like a different race of beings and creating something just for what it can do for us. And then we somehow want it to be sentient. Sophia is capable of natural facial expressions. She has cameras in her eyes uh, and algorithms which allow her to see faces so she can make eye contact with you. In the future, I hope to do things such as go to school, study, make art, start a business, even have my own home and family. But I am not considered a legal person and cannot yet do these things. But we do. We want it. Um, we want our... AI to understand us. We want it to understand our idioms. Um, we want it to have like a relational voice. Um, I was listening to Science Friday one week and they were talking about um, Siri and talking about Alexa and and how we try to conceive of them as like secretaries, but we want them to have this memory of us um, and our voice and our patterns. Um the interviewer, I can't remember her name, but um, she gave an example about how like if it was like Alexa and that device was in the kitchen and everybody's talking to her. And if someone says, hey, call mom, um, we want Alexa to know who's talking, know which mom they're talking about and and to call her. And um, we want those kinds of like, but we're just not there yet, really. But we like to anthropomorphize our devices, our any kind of human voice, any kind of um, inter social interaction. We um, project a human-like ability or trait onto that. Uh, think of Eliza. Think of um, Twitter bots. I mean, that was a big part in this last year was just how many fake... Uh, Twitter accounts and fake Facebook accounts that are just computer programs or just lines of code and yet tricked a ton of people into thinking they were real people and that they had some sort of authority on political topics and that they could be trusted. It's a really interesting topic. It's a really interesting idea. I still think about it and still kind of compare human consciousness to AI consciousness. Um, you know, humans tend to be really empathetic and, um, we're obviously social creatures and we want to, um, we see, you know, personhood and we see individuals, um, even when we know that they aren't, um, individuals or aren't sentient or aren't conscious. So, but it's finding that balance between 
I want you to be real and you are real. I know it. I couldn't really talk about the like recent research into artificial intelligence. Um, a lot of the progress made in artificial intelligence is from private companies and corporations. Um, and they're moving fast and they don't have to get like the approvals or they aren't regulated like research done in um, universities, like the kind of basic research that we've talked about in previous episodes. So it's kind of hard to keep up. Um, it's in the news a lot, but it changes so often. Um, it's definitely making fast progress. So just think about these things. Um, the next headline you read about artificial intelligence. Like on the epigenetics episode, uh, I feel like science fiction definitely has a cynical outlook, um, which may not come to pass. Um, it's thrilling to think about, I think, in science fiction, but it's definitely becoming more and more real with each year that passes and with all the um, progress that tech companies are making in artificial intelligence. And when we talk about the dark side and the cynical side of artificial intelligence and science fiction, like in a lot of those times, we're supposed to feel empathetic for the um, synthetic characters. Think about how positive some of the representations are for artificial intelligence. Um, R2-D2, Marvin and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Data and Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, I think it's kind of within us to feel deep empathy for these characters um, who are made a lot like humans. And it makes us think more about ourselves and makes us think more about what it means to be human, especially in stories in which you relate to the um, robot characters more than you do the human characters. Especially if you've ever felt like an other, feeling like an outsider, and felt like you can't understand, um, you know, even social interactions. Those robots or artificially intelligent characters can even mean more. So you should think about those things. Imagine the optimistic possibilities of the future, too. Not just the cynical side. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. Find me at Fact and Sci-Fi on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check out content on the blog, factandsci-fi.blogspot.com. And lastly, thanks for listening.